Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome. It's good to be here with you all. Uh, last week, in our first message on this series on race and racism and reconciliation, we ended on a we ended with a really a, a multi-ethnic vision of the kingdom that we see um, from the beginning to the end of Scripture. God has has been building and God has been promising, and we left with the question of why haven't we embodied it? Well, that's the question that we want to begin with today, and history provides some perspective. And I wanted to just give a little bit of a, a personal testimony in regard to the, the role of history in my own understanding and perspective and development of, of sympathy, empathy, a, a just a, a really a, an, an awakening um, into this subject of race and uh, the racism of, of, our, of our country and its history. The, um, when I went back to school to finish my undergraduate degree as a 30-year-old, um, I uh, majored in history after many years of engineering and architecture. It's another long story. Uh, but history, I had, as I was, I was already in the ministry and, and saw the benefits of history in my preaching and teaching uh, efforts. And so I decided to major on history. I could complete it the quickest. And little did I know the impact that it would have on me in a number of ways. But one of the most significant was in this subject of race. And the classes I, I kind of followed, there were two or three professors that focused on the cultural, social, and intellectual history of Europe and America in the modern era. And one of the primary themes and subjects of these, of these classes and these two or three professors was the subject of race. And uh, it was the first class I took um, where we had to, to do uh, several readings. And the first book that I read that really kind of began to open my eyes, it's a fiction book, and probably many of you have read it. It's required reading and of high school curriculums is Uncle Tom's Cabin uh, by Harriet Beecher Stowe, which is just kind of a, it's a picture of, of, of slavery prior to the Civil War, and it is heart-wrenching. Um, and it's, it, while it is a fiction, it was based upon an extensive amount of research that she did that went into um, what, what African people in, had to endure uh, in the colonies and in the states. And so the next, you know, I took a few more classes and began to increasingly understand our history. But was but what was even more surprising than a, a picture of the realities of slavery in the South um, and racism and discrimination in the North was a, was a book by Alan Spear called Black Chicago, which was set in the 40s and 50s and 60s of the United States, um, way past the era of slavery, way past the Civil War. And um, I, I mean, I just remember reading that book and wondering why I had never heard of this. I mean, it, it, it just detailed the intentional not unintentional, not unknowing, the intentional efforts 
of, of all these various um, departments, uh, institutions, groups in the city of Chicago that intentionally discriminated against um, black people in, in every aspect of society. And it was just unbelievable to me. And uh, I, just a short time after taking that class and reading that book, I taught a series on the book of James. Um, because James is very practical. It's got a lot of teaching on discrimination and favoritism. And it, uh, I would say that that, that that episode, those seasons where I was being exposed to these books and the history of it, um, drastically changed the way I thought about the, the gospel and its intended effects on um, the social aspects of our world. And um, I actually, one of the things that came away from that, and this just kind of gives a hint of my thinking, I was, I was actually just kind of getting ready to um, start a, a very focused and, and uh, intentional just long-term investment plan and had it all set up with my financial planner. And I'm not saying this is the way you should go, and this is not the way that I do it now, but at that point, it was, there was such an extreme change in me for the social good that I completely, I mean, I met the guy, I had to drive two hours to meet him, and I said, you know what, I'm not going to follow through with any of my plans. I, I don't want my, I didn't want my money to go towards efforts that I didn't know where they went, and if perhaps the companies that I would be investing in would be somehow contributing to social ills and all these kinds of things, but it just had a profound impact on me. And while, you know, when, when we can look at history, and there's no such thing as an unobjective, excuse me, there's no such thing as, as an objective writer, whether you're a journalist or historian or uh, whatever, there's no such thing as objectivity. We are all coming to um, our lives, our work, our ideas, our perspectives with biases, and, and I think what's better is if we're clear on the perspectives that we have, the biases that we have, and report and narrate things that we are. In fact, ancient history saw it as more valuable for people to be involved in what was going on, and they gave a more accurate perspective, and then the goal was to get as many perspectives as you have. And so I think as we consider history, and you know, there's a lot of discussion and debate and argument um, in our in our political and social environment right now and the role of history, and um, it's important. It's important. We need to recognize that, yes, there are going to be biases, but that's why we read as, as many different perspectives as we can, and once we start to collect perspectives, you get a, a greater understanding of what the truth and what the reality is. So we're going to look at history today. It's necessary. Um, there's a book that I've been reading called The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. Tisby is an uh, evangelical Christian, uh, a, a black author and scholar. And the book is about um, the church's compromise in America in regard to racism and discrimination and slavery. And Lecrae, the uh, African-American hip-hop artist, um, believer, 
uh, wrote, wrote the foreword, and I just want to give his, he, he says something about history at the beginning. He says, as Christians, when we read the Bible, we recognize that events that happened thousands of years ago are still relevant today. We also see that Scripture never hides the ugly parts of history when it comes to the people of God. Just as we can't take out the parts of the Bible that we don't like or that make us uncomfortable, we can't celebrate the shining moments of the American church's history and then ignore the shameful aspects of that history. We either fully acknowledge the entire history or dismiss it all. The truth about humanity's heritage turns a mirror on our souls and pushes us to recognize who we truly are and who we are not. And so in asking the question, why, as a, why, why is the people of God, why have we not embodied uh, the vision that we see in Scripture? And obviously we know that, that the ideal is not going to come until Jesus returns. But when we ask the question, why haven't we embodied a, a, a kingdom, a people that reflects the, the multi-ethnic, multi-racial, multi-national um, uh, vision that the that the scriptures have, and so we're, again, we're going to answer that question through history. Now, I just wanted to point out a few instances where where the scriptures use history to bring the present generation to a place of of understanding and knowledge, first of all, but then to a place of of repentance and commitment to the future vision. And so, if you can remember. You know, the, the uh, ancient nation of Israel, God had saved them out of the slavery of Egypt um, and promised them this beautiful land flowing with milk and honey, and, and they would never have to fear enemies or starvation or anything like that. But the, that, that, that generation that had been delivered, that had seen all of these amazing miracles of God, uh, continued to show faithlessness and disobedience toward him, and so God forbade them from entering that promised land. So they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. And so at the beginning of Deuteronomy, you have the kids of that first generation. You have the second generation of Israel, and Moses goes through three chapters of history and says, hey, here's, because all, all of those people would have been 20 years old or less you know, at the time of, of Israel's unfaithfulness. And so he, up, he updated them on their history and explained why it was that they had been wandering around for 40 years, and it was to serve as a motivation for going into the land with a renewed commitment to God. Ezekiel 20, you know, Ezekiel narrates the, one of the most difficult seasons, in fact, the most difficult season in Israel's history. Um, they were under captivity, they were under siege, they were starving, they were eating their own children. It was a desperate time in the, in the nation of Israel. And so the elders of Israel um, gather and they go to the prophet and they want to inquire of God as to why in the world this is happening. And God says, you know what? I am done explaining things to you, Israel. And he goes through their history. You know, 
From the earliest days, here's what I have communicated to your fathers, and here's what you did, and here's what I communicated to your fathers, and here's what you did. And there's several cycles that he goes through. So he gets to the end and says, I am done with you, nation of Israel, because of their history. Acts 7, the, uh, the deacon Stephen is given an opportunity to, to proclaim the gospel. He is he is, uh, he, is, he is arrested for preaching the gospel uh, in the early days of the church, and he is brought before the, the court there of the Jewish leaders, and he explains their history. And then at the end of that, he explains why they crucified the promised Messiah, and then they killed him. And so Stephen used history to explain his actions and to explain the recent events and to explain their, their condemnation. And so there are two responses that we can have to history. And, and this, is, this is really where the passages are coming out of today. The first response we can see out of Ezekiel 18, and then the second we can see, uh, well, there's two responses in Ezekiel 18. And then I think we see in Daniel 9 a, a, um, a, a response that I would think that we would all want to model. So Ezekiel 18, you have the text there in your handout. And if you are joining us online, the handout is in the PDF from the website. Ezekiel 18, 1 through 4, the word of the Lord came to me. What do you mean by repeating this proverb concerning the land of Israel? The fathers have eaten sour grapes, and the children's teeth are set on edge. As I live, declares the Lord God, this proverb shall no more be used by you in Israel. Behold, all the souls are mine. The soul of the father as well as the soul of the son is mine. The soul who sins shall die. And then it goes on to explain that a little bit more, but the, the, the main idea is present here in these four verses. The present generation of Ezekiel's day was experiencing a lot of suffering due to their history, due to the sins of previous generations. And so this, this phrase, the fathers have eaten sour grapes, so they were the ones that engage in activity that would be uncomfortable and lead to suffering. But it's the kids who tasted the sour grapes. Why, so the nation was saying, why are we experiencing the hardships when it was the previous generation that committed the sins? And so God then explains uh, what is going on. And in this, in this, in this, and he explains that, no, that, and, and, he, and it's really, you know, the, he brings up this idea of souls, and there's really two dynamics that we need to look at when we start thinking about responsibility. There are righteous people, there are wicked people. There are wicked people that repent and become righteous. There are righteous people that turn to wickedness after being righteous. And Ezekiel 18 explains how God is going to judge each one of those situations. But he says, if a, if a person is righteous, their soul will be saved, and if they maintain that place of righteousness. If a person is wicked and maintains a state of wickedness, they're going to suffer death and punishment and judgment. So that is the state of souls. But in terms of what we experience in real life, we are going to suffer the effects 
of previous generations. We are going to, we are going to suffer the, the effects of the sins of our forefathers. And so we can't get away from experiencing what has happened in this country uh, prior to even it was a country. The evils that were committed by previous generations, we're going to feel the effects of. That doesn't mean that my soul is going to be is being judged because of those previous generations. It points to the fact that we as individuals still have the responsibility to be and to pursue righteousness. We may be suffering from previous generations, but we can still make the choice to pursue righteousness. And that's really the two options are set up here. We can look at the present suffering that we're in and we can say, you know what, God is unjust. I'm suffering because of other people. Um, to heck with him. My sins are going to be excusable. I'm suffering anyway. What's the point? Or we can say, God is just in his judgments. I I may not have committed the sins of the previous generations, but I understand that I'm going to be responsible for them um, simply because I am from them. They built foundations that I am now living on. And because I understand it, I, I am still going to pursue righteousness. I am still going to try to repent from and build something stronger for my generation and the future generations. Those are the two responses that we can really have. I'm suffering now, why change? It's not going to make any difference. Or, oh, I'm going to strive to pursue God in righteousness, even though I'm suffering. And then in Daniel 9, we see him as a citizen of the nation of Israel in Babylon, and he's reading his Bible, and he's in captivity. He's suffering the effects of previous generations. He says, in the first year of Darius, the son of Azahurus, by descent a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, perceived in the books the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Then I turned my face to the Lord God, seeking him by prayer and pleas for mercy, with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made my confession, saying, O Lord, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, we have sinned and done wrong and acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and rules. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our fathers, and to all the people of the land. To you, O Lord, belongs righteousness, but to us open shame. As at this day, to the men of Judah, to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and to all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them, because of the treachery that they have committed against you. To us, O Lord, belongs open shame, to our kings, to our princes, and to our fathers, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by walking in his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. 
And the curse and oath that are written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against him. He has confirmed his words, which he spoke against us, and against our rulers who ruled us, by bringing upon us a great calamity. For under the whole heaven there has not been done anything like what has been done against Jerusalem. As it is written in the law of Moses, all of this calamity has come upon us. Yet we have not entreated the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and gaining insight by your truth. Therefore the Lord has kept ready the calamity and has brought it upon us. For the Lord our God is righteous in all the works that he has done, and we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and have made a name for yourself as at this, as at this day, we have sinned, we have done wickedly. O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill, because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy and for your own sake. O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate." O my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city that is called by your name. For we do not present our pleas before you because of our righteousness, but because of your great mercy. O Lord, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not. For your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. Daniel was a righteous man, considered in Scripture as one of the most righteous. And he is confessing, so he is at the end of Israel's, of Judah's 70 years of captivity. So he's, he's some generations in from when they were taken into captivity. But it was hundreds of years of sins of Israel and Judah against God that brought them to that place of captivity. He is confessing the sins of the nation that had been committed over centuries. And he is not saying they. He is saying we. He's saying this is us. We have sinned. He perceived in the books. He learned from history. And what he perceived, he pursued prayer, fasting, confession, and pleas for mercy. I think Daniel is a good example for what we as Christians should do whenever we are faced with the effects of not only our own sin, but even more so when we see that we are suffering the effects of the sins of previous generations. He identified himself with his people and didn't separate himself from them or from, them their, from their sins. And so if we think about 
the church. And I want to focus on the church. Not, I mean, we can look at America, and we're going to look at America over the next few months in some detail with some specific narratives and stories and from the guests that we have coming. But I want to let today look at the church. And yes, it's absolutely true that in regard to the subject and the social ill of, of racism and slavery and discrimination, it has been Christians at the forefront of the movements, both in America and Europe, to lead the change to abolish both slavery and racism. William Wilberforce in England and the Clapham Church, which was a an all-white church of super wealthy people that were the that were the support force for William Wilberforce, which eventually led after 40 years of effort by this small group of people, all white people, all rich people in this church that really were the support network behind Wilberforce and the 40 years of effort in the in the in England to abolish uh, slavery and um, um, discrimination in. Uh, uh, that country, but also in all of their holdings, which was global. Yes, it was the Quakers and the abolitionists that were believers here in the, uh, in the colonies and in the states that led the efforts to abolish slavery here in America. And obviously, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was very motivated by his Christian faith. So yeah, we have good examples, and we can say that, that those who have declared the name of Jesus, have led the way in abolishing slavery and discrimination in this world. However, that's not the only part of the story. And I would encourage you all to pick up Jamar Tisby's book. He goes from the colonial era up through, I mean, I think the book was published in 2019, and so it comes right up to our current history and just shows how the evangelical Protestant church and the Catholic Church, uh, all of these various ways where it has either been complicit or proponents in slavery and racism or just didn't do anything. So I would encourage you all to read that book. But what I want to look at today um, is, is uh, Dr. King's letter from a Birmingham jail. And if you have not read that, well, it's kind of going to be an assignment for the church this week if you choose to, to take it upon yourself. Again, it's, in, it's written in 1963. Um, Dr. King was a leading proponent of nonviolent, uh, intentional activism. Direct action is what they called it. And basically what they would do, before they would get, engage in any sort of direct action, which would be uh, marches or boycotts, nonviolent, um, they would they would do some research on the city. And so Birmingham, Alabama is the setting for this letter and where he, was, where he wrote, he was in a jail in Birmingham, Alabama, obviously, when he wrote this letter. It's a 6,000-word letter. It's a, it's a long letter. Um, and uh, so they, they would go into a place, they would research, are there injustices here? And they would spend a long time doing the research. Are there injustices uh, in, its, in its civil government, in its policing, in the economic and business sectors. And if there was substantial injustice, uh, they would go talk to the officials. They would go talk to the business leaders. And those officials and business leaders would make commitments to take down any um, racist signs or you know, change the laws. 
And if they didn't live up to what they promised to do, that's when they would engage in um, the, the marches and the boycotts and, and these kinds of things. And so that's what they had done in Birmingham, Alabama. But you have to recognize um, that what was going on, and you need to read this letter, and you, we need to read history of this, of this season. We're, again, we're going to look at some things as we go through this series. Um, people were being lynched. Children were being killed. And the church, the white church, did little. And I want to read directly from the, the letter, because it's an indictment. It's an indictment to the white church, and I don't think that I could say it any better. I mean, I, it brought tears to my eyes reading this letter. I must honestly reiterate that I have been disappointed with the church. I do not say that as one of those negative critics who can always find something wrong with the church. I say it as a minister of the gospel who loves the church, who is nurtured in its bosom, who has been sustained by its spiritual blessings, and who will remain true to it as long as the cord of life shall lengthen. I can just see him sitting in this jail cell writing this. I had the strange feeling when I was suddenly catapulted into the leadership of the bus protest in Montgomery several years ago that we would have the support of the white church. I felt that the white ministers, priests, and rabbis of the South would be some of our strongest allies. Instead, some few have been outright opponents, refusing to understand the freedom movement and misrepresenting its leaders. All too many others have been more cautious than courageous and have remained silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. In the midst of blatant injustices inflicted upon the Negro, I have watched white churches stand on the sidelines and merely mouth pious irrelevancies and sanctimonious trivialities. In the midst of a mighty struggle to rid our nation of racial and economic injustice, I have heard so many ministers say, those are social issues which the gospel has nothing to do with. And I have watched so many churches commit themselves to a completely otherworldly religion which made a strange distinction between bodies and souls, the sacred and the secular. And if you're familiar with the prophets, which, you know, we spent 13 weeks on Ezekiel, one of the things that Israel was being judged and taken into exile for was its mistreatment of immigrants, was its mistreatment of the poor, and of the the growing economic disparities between the political and economic elites, uh, you know, and, and even the, the, the there's, a, there's, and this is in Amos, one of the dynamics that you saw was that the wives of these people demanding comfort would drive their husbands to these kinds of exploitations. And so oftentimes we can make, like our families and our kids, we use them to justify insulating ourselves from the problems of our society. And so the, the, the condemnations are across the board in the prophets. 
and you come away recognizing that as God's people, we are all responsible for social justice. Israel was condemned for it. And we cannot see these things as just, there are social issues and then there are gospel and evangelism issues. And that's really one of the big arguments that was made by the white church towards the leaders of the civil rights era that were seeking racial justice. And so it is our responsibility to perceive in the books there are books that explain. You know, Daniel was reading the books, and he came to the conclusion that he needed to identify himself with the generations of the past and to confess their sins. Daniel saw that the people of God were one. And we need to, we, you know, when it, what had happened is that there were eight ministers that wrote him a letter while he was in jail and said, Dr. King, you've gone too far. You just, need to be, you just need to wait. You need to be patient. Let the process of the courts and the laws and all these kinds of things work out. And he's like, you know, you haven't suffered. All. And then he just went down a list of things. And it's, it's, they're not minor things. They are things that any human being should stand up and say, this is not right. We are not going to continue to allow this kind of activity in our country. We need to say that that is us. If we believe the gospel that says that through the Holy Spirit we are one as a kingdom, if we believe that, then we have to say that this wasn't the church of the 1960s and we have no responsibility in the matter. We have to say that that is us. That's a we. And, and the beautiful thing of the gospel that enables us to do that is that Jesus has said that. Jesus has said, that is me. That is us. And he, and he said that when he went to the cross and says, I am willing to become you, to bear your guilt and to bear your shame so that you can become me. We have a hesitancy just as individuals to want to, to no longer, to, we don't want to acknowledge what we have done wrong. We go out of our way to hide what we do because we do not want to acknowledge our guilt and mostly we don't want to feel the shame. We don't want to feel ashamed. Even when we, we know that we've done it and we've been caught on it and people are rebuking us for it. We know it. They know it. Certainly God knows it. We're getting corrected. And we just won't admit it. Because when we admit it, we have to admit that, yeah, just like Lecrae said, the truth pushes us to recognize who we truly are, and who we are not. And, and we do not want to recognize when confronted with our sin who we truly are because of our self-perception. Why? It's because we're still putting the, our self-perception 
as something that we want to have said we did. This is who I am. This is who I've made myself to be. I, I want to be great. I am great. <laughs> you know, instead of just acknowledging, you, you know, I am nothing. I have sinned incredibly. And I need another identity. And, and it's, as individuals, it's hard for us to do that. You know, and I think as a church, collectively, it's hard for us to do that. Are, are we willing to say that wasn't just the, the white ministers of Birmingham, Alabama in 1963? You know, because it wasn't just Birmingham, Alabama in 1963. It was a lot of white churches throughout the country for centuries. And honestly, some black churches as well. Some black churches and some black leaders that didn't want to upset things. Dr. Martin Luther King was, was heavily ridiculed by prominent black leaders of his day. as obviously a lot more prominent white leaders. And a lot of that came down to the concern on what would happen to people and their participation in church and their giving. If we upset it too much, people are going to no longer follow us and they're no longer going to give. So we have to take on the example of Daniel. We have to pray that God would show his mercy on us. We're centuries into this, 400 years into this as a history. Israel was a lot longer into their history of unfaithfulness toward God. We are suffering the effects of discrimination and, and, and racism and, and slavery. It's different than things were in 1960, but there are some similarities. But we are still suffering the effects. And so we need to, we need to confess like Daniel did and say, we, Lord God, have sinned against you. And we need to ask God for mercy. We need to, to fast and to consider the significance of what we are experiencing and the, and the desperate need that we have for God to show his mercy and to do a good and to do a work that, that unites his people for a force of good in the midst of, 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 a, of a generation that has no idea on how to deal with this. And so one of the prophets, Micah, in this familiar, you know, the Lord has shown us what is good and what the Lord requires of us, to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. And so we have a, a call to confession. You know, what I want to do is just encourage us all as a church this week. If you have a, a lot of time, or if you just want to start getting a better picture of the church's guilt in regard to racism and slavery, I would encourage you to pick up Jamar Tisby's, Tisby's book, uh, The Color of Compromise, Tisby, Jamar Tisby, um, or download Martin Luther King's letter from a Birmingham jail and just read it. And if, you, if, if you're not moved to tears, you just need to keep reading it until you are. Um, and if moved, if, if, if moved, Consider fasting. Certainly pray and certainly confess. Read through Daniel 9 and say, Lord, we have sinned against you. We have 
discriminated. We have shown favoritism. We have committed injustices or we have let injustices go by without saying or doing anything. And then we're called to do justice and to love mercy. But that's a big question. What does it mean to do justice? What does it mean to do justice right now? You know, there are, there are at least four major theories of justice. How do we pursue justice in this world? So that's next week. What are the theories of justice present in the current situation? Each, each one directing people to how to solve wrongs and to do good. And we're going to look at a, just a kind of a framework for a biblical theory of justice. And then towards the end of the series, we're going to have an entire message on a biblical vision for justice. What's that look like? So I would, again, I would encourage you, let's grab hold of the gospel let us not be fearful of saying, that was us. Because Jesus has said, that was me. That was me. I'll take on that sin. I'll take on that shame. And I'll take on that guilt. And we, can be af- we cannot be afraid to do that because um, Jesus has also said, I will be you. And you will be me. You can have my righteousness. You can have my identity as an individual and as a people. Let us, let us move that direction this week. Let us pray. Let us confess. Let us fast if you're moved to do that as we continue to seek uh, the Lord and, and how to do justice in this world. Let me pray. Lord, we, um, I thank you for the testimony of your people. I thank you for the work of, of, of Dr. King. I thank you for his writings. Um, I ask God that uh, you would help us as a, this is a, as, as a small group of your people here in the Twin Cities, uh, a place that is, has certainly experienced a lot of injustice over the decades. Um, God, we pray that you would help us to perceive accurately um, what, the, what problems are, uh, what you're calling us to do, uh, and God, that you would grow us in, in unity with your people people of all nations and colors and ethnicities and cultures here in the Twin Cities as we, as we seek to do justice in your world. In your son's name we pray. Amen.